I have a friend who has visited All Souls a couple of times, and uh, he told me that every time he visits, I'm preaching on some obscure passage out of the book of Genesis. Well, I think if he were here this morning, he would say, uh, this maybe is the most obscure of all. Uh, These are the, 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 the passages that we often kind of skim over as we're doing our Bible reading to get on to some other meteor story, but I hope you will find that there's a, there's a lot here, and uh, uh, it's actually a little bit um, uh, spicy, as Josue would say. <laughs> Chapter 25. <laughs> Before we read, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we uh, thank you for your word, uh, every part of it, every uh, chapter, every verse, every, every word, uh, every jot and tittle, as Jesus has said. And uh, we pray that you would teach us from it this morning, that you would uh, not only help us to understand this text, but help us to see Jesus more clearly in it and uh, help us to rest more fully in the gospel Uh, because of having heard from you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 25, we're going to read verses 1 through 18. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan, The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leomim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Elda'ah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Keter, Abdiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetor, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Living with family is not always easy. Family life is messy. Uh, That feels more true in our day than ever. Uh, Blended families, step-siblings, half-siblings, 
But of course, we can't leave out plain old siblings as well as in-laws. And let's not forget parents and kids. Relationships are messy. And figuring out how to navigate all of those relationships is hard. It's hard because every person is different and every relationship is different and conflicts inevitably arise, little ones and big ones, things as simple as who keeps emptying the toilet paper roll and not replacing it, and as complicated as squabbles over inheritances, gossip, and adultery. Add different religious or political views into the mix and Thanksgiving dinners get real interesting. How do you love people well in the midst of it all? Where do you put your time and energy? How do you stay faithful in the messiness of relationships? Now, I say the messiness of family life feels more true in our day than ever, but of course it's not. The Bible is full of blended families. Besides adultery and divorce and remarriage, throw polygamy into the mix and you can just wait for the sparks to fly. Our text this morning tells us something about Isaac's place in the midst of his brothers. And as we look at that, we will learn something about how we are to live as God's covenant people in the midst of the world around us. Ultimately, we are one big family, even if at times a dysfunctional one. Of course, before we see how we are to live, we have to see how Isaac points us forward to Jesus and then sheds light on our lives in Jesus. And so as we look at the text, here's what we're going to see. Uh, If we put the question this way, how do we live in the world among non-Christians, especially non-Christian family members? The answer is imperfectly, as pilgrims, seeking the other's good and focused on things to come. Or put differently, I want us to notice four things, our messy witness, our pilgrim life, our servant's calling, and our living hope. So first, our messy witness. Do you ever feel like you have blown it? Uh, That your Christian witness is so bad that there's no way God could use it? Have you ever felt like you've sinned so much or in such a way that you're embarrassed to admit that you are a Christian? Or perhaps you, you wonder if you even believe it yourself? Well, you are not alone. In fact, the great heroes of the faith in the Bible almost to a man are great sinners. And Abraham is no exception. And do you remember some of his missteps that we've looked at throughout Genesis? He, he lies about Sarah being his wife, endangers her sexual purity in order to save his own skin twice. Uh, when God was slow to fulfill his promise of a child, he takes Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, as his wife to try to raise up a child through her. That is, he sleeps with his wife's servant, which, though acceptable in that culture, was still sin. And in so doing, he was relying on his own power rather than God's promises. God wasn't coming through, at least not in the timing that Abraham had in mind, so he and Sarah devised a scheme where they could obtain the good life by their own human effort. Abraham was far from perfect. Though I think sometimes we, we still think, okay, but, but besides those couple of things, he, he, uh, he, he really had other things together, didn't he? I mean, I'm, I mean, a couple of big mistakes over 175 years, I mean, that's not bad, right? 
Well, I hate to say it, I think I'm going to burst your bubble this morning. Uh, Look at how this chapter starts in verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now, on the surface, uh, this seems to be saying that Abraham took another wife after Sarah. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. He is free to marry after Sarah's death. And perhaps that is all this means. But listen to what John Calvin has to say about this text. This is what he says. He says, It seems very absurd that Abraham, who is said to have been dead in his own body 38 years before the decease of Sarah, should, after her death, marry another wife. Besides, when Paul commends his faith in Romans 4.19, he not only asserts that the womb of Sarah was dead when Isaac was about to be born, but also that the body of the father himself was dead. Therefore, Abraham acted most foolishly if after the loss of his wife, he in the decrepitude of his old age, that's a great word, isn't it? The decrepitude of his old age, contracted another marriage. Further, it is at variance with the language of Paul that he who in his hundredth year was old and impotent should 40 years afterwards have many sons. Many commentators, this is still Calvin, many commentators to avoid this absurdity suppose Keturah to have been the same person as Hagar. But their conjecture is immediately refuted in the context where Moses says Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. Others others conjecture that while Sarah was yet living, he took another wife. This, although worthy of grave censure, is, however, not altogether incredible, says Calvin. We know it to be not uncommon for men to be rendered bold by excessive license. Thus, Abraham, having once transgressed the law of marriage, perhaps after the dispute respecting Hagar, did not desist from the practice of polygamy. It is also probable that his mind had been wounded by the divorce which Sarah had compelled him to make with Hagar. Such conduct indeed was disgraceful or at least unbecoming the holy patriarch. Nevertheless, no other of all the conjectures which have been made seems to me more probable. If it be admitted, the narrative belongs to another place, but Moses is frequently accustomed to place those things which have precedence in time in a different order. All right, now that's a lot, but do you see what Calvin is saying? And Calvin isn't alone. Many, if not most, commentators think the same thing. When the text says Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, it doesn't say when Abraham took Keturah as his wife. Just because it is placed here doesn't mean it happened here chronologically. The writer is here bringing the story of Abraham to a conclusion, and uh, as, as we might put it, he's, he's wrapping up loose ends as if he had said, oh, by the way, Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah. And in fact, some Hebrew scholars are quick to point out the Hebrew could be read that way, that Abraham had taken another wife. Now, if you're a little uncomfortable with Moses... Uh, uh, the, the at least primary uh, writer of Genesis, dischronologizing the story, he's actually about to do it again. Uh, in verses 7 to 8, Moses records Abraham's death, but later in the chapter, he will record the birth of Jacob and Esau. 
The thing is, Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old, and Jacob and Esau are born when Isaac is 60 years old, which would put Abraham at 160 when Jacob and Esau are born. And Abraham, we are told, died in, uh, told in verse 7, died at 175, which means, as far as Moses is concerned, Abraham lived to see his grandsons turn 15. Recording his death first is not meant to confuse us, if you do the math, it's obvious, or mislead us, and it's not a mistake. It is a narrative device. Moses is wrapping up Abraham's story before moving on to Jacob and Esau. He's not writing in strictly chronological order. He is telling a story, a true story, yes, but rarely do we uh, recount even our day's events in a strict chronological order. If someone says to you, oh, how was your day? We move back and forth depending on what we want to highlight and emphasize, and Moses is doing the same thing. And so the big question is, when did Abraham take Keturah as his wife? Certain Jewish rabbis had an ingenious idea. They were the ones who came up with the idea that Keturah is Hagar. And they, they came up with the idea like this, and it, it really is rather uh, fascinating. Back in chapter 24, just before this uh, chapter, 24 comes before 25, basic uh, counting. Uh, back in chapter 24, Isaac was in Beer Lahai Roy. Why? Well, they say, when Isaac saw his father was trying to get him a bride, in chapter 24, he couldn't take the idea of his father living out the rest of his life alone. So Isaac went to Beer Lahai Roy. Beer Lahai Roy is the well where the Lord found Hagar when she was running from Sarah in chapter 16. So the thought goes, Isaac was going to Beer Lahai Roy to find Hagar, to return or restore her to Abraham after Sarah's death. Hence, Keturah is Hagar. And lots of people in the Bible have two names, so that in and of itself is not an issue. And this, they say, explains how Isaac and Ishmael can be side by side at Abraham's burial in verse 9. Isaac's restoration of Hagar to Abraham won over Ishmael's heart and brought reconciliation between the brothers as well. It's really quite beautiful. I wish it were true. Uh, maybe one day I'll ask Isaac or Hagar or Ishmael, but for now, we look at the text. And as far as I can tell, the text actually speaks against this, uh, however uh, beautiful it may be, but against this story. Uh, look at verses 5 and 6. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. Do you notice the plural there, concubines? Abraham had more than one concubine. The implication is that Hagar and Keturah were both concubines. In fact, Keturah is called a concubine, I think, in 1 Chronicles. Uh, but if Keturah was a concubine and not a full wife, it is more likely true than not that Calvin's, quote, conjecture is right. Abraham took Keturah as a, uh, as a wife, as a concubine, while married to Sarah. Now, uh, let me say two things about this. It, assuming that this is true, that this is the, the right way of reading this story, first, it's important to say that polygamy is not God's design. It was not the pattern in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Jane and Mary. 
Uh, Polygamy doesn't come in until the wicked son of wicked Cain, Lamech. And while it is regulated by Old Testament law, it is never the ideal. And when we come to the New Testament, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, uh, church leaders must be the husband of one wife to reassert the biblical pattern of one man and one woman. So first, despite Abraham's behavior uh, and David's and Solomon's and others, polygamy is not God's pattern by design, but a distortion of God's pattern brought about by sin. Second, Abraham's sin did not mean God abandoned him. God didn't give up on Abraham. God didn't reject him. God continued to walk with Abraham and work through Abraham to bring about his purposes. And do you see why this is important? Uh, Perhaps you are stuck in some sin. You feel like it's never going to go away. You wonder if God could ever use you to bear witness to his grace because of your struggles. Now, of course, you should strive for holiness by all means. But as you strive and sometimes fail, God's grace for sinners is actually put on display. If you and I were perfect, we could not witness to God's grace. But God used Abraham, and he can use you and me to bring about his purposes as well. So that's the first point, our messy witness. Second, our pilgrim life. We have been stressing this reality all through our studies of Abraham's life. We are pilgrims and strangers on earth. This world is not our home. We, we don't belong. We don't fit in. Isaac was no different. It, it must have been strange to have been Isaac. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine what his family dinners would have been like? Siblings always uh, try to one-up one another. They vie for first place. Sibling rivalry is real from Cain and Abel onward. But Isaac's parents literally sent all of his siblings away. We saw them send away Ishmael back in chapter 22, but now we know this happened more than once. Verse 6 says that while Abraham was still alive, he sent all his other children away from Isaac which consists of at least seven brothers, Ishmael plus the six listed in verse two. Now, this may bring other questions to your mind, like what kind of a dad is Abraham? He sends his children away? In fact, it brings up a question someone asked me uh, back from chapter 22. Uh, When Abraham, a wealthy man, sends away Hagar and Ishmael, it seems as if he only sends them away with a small water jug and that's it. They end up thirsty and alone in the desert. What kind of a dad is that? Now the answer to that question, I think, is that actually Abraham had sent them away with much more, but it wasn't pertinent to the story. Uh, Verse 6 here says, to the sons of Abraham's concubines, which would include Ishmael, Abraham gave gifts. So I think the answer is Abraham provided generously for his children, Ishmael included. But why send them away? Let's think about Isaac's relationships to his brothers for a minute. Isaac is the child of promise. God said that that, uh, to Abraham, through Isaac, your offspring will be named. That is, the covenant family would consist of Isaac and Isaac's children. Abraham was going to give Isaac everything he owned, verse 5. Besides the gifts that he gave to his other sons, the whole inheritance, in the end, would be Isaac's. 
In verse 11, God was going to bless Isaac as the seed of Abraham, the child of promise. Now, think about this for a minute, right? How does it work out when one child is favored above all the rest? Have you ever seen it go well when parents play favorites? Now, we don't really have to guess at this because something similar is going to happen later in Genesis. Uh, Joseph will be the favored son of his father, Jacob, and his brothers will hate him for it. In fact, it gets so bad, they sell him into slavery and tell their father that he was killed by a wild animal. Sibling rivalry can get pretty bad. And Jesus, too, would come to his own, his brothers, and be rejected by them. This was true both of Jesus' literal brothers, who thought he had lost his mind at one point in his ministry, and it was true of Jesus' ethnic brothers, his fellow Jews. Except this time, the unwanted brother is not just sold into slavery as with Joseph, but actually put to death on the cross. And so Abraham sends away his other children to protect the child of promise, to protect the covenant, to protect God's purposes and plan. Odd, sure, but necessary for the sake of Isaac and for the sake of the covenant promises. And so Isaac is exalted over his brothers and protected from them, but he also lives alongside them. Uh, when Abraham dies, Isaac and Ishmael bury him together. And you kind of wonder what that funeral was like. Was it one of those awkward family reunions where no one really knows what to say? Or was there actually some kind of reconciliation between Isaac and Ishmael? I'd like to believe that. I'd like to hope that. Uh, the fact that Isaac settles in Beer Lahai Roy after the funeral is actually a tantalizing detail. Since that site, again, is associated with Hagar and therefore Ishmael, was there some kind of reconciliation? Did Isaac actually go and live with his half-brother after the death of his father? Who knows? Yet, uh, we do know that Ishmael continued to live at odds with his brothers. The ESV translates it kinsmen in verse 18. So maybe our hopes of a brotherly reconciliation don't have much weight after all. Again, there's, there's a story behind the story that we don't know, which is okay, right? God tells us only what we need to know. But here's the point. Isaac, like his father, is a pilgrim in this world. He, he doesn't belong even to his own family. He must be protected from his brothers, though he lives alongside them at times. And then there's, there's Ishmael, right? That brother who's always picking fights with everybody. Well, as we've noted before, Christ came as a pilgrim and stranger as well. Like Isaac, he, he came into the world but was not of the world. He too was rejected by his brothers and he was put to death. And we too, who are in Christ, live as aliens and strangers, the New Testament tells us, in the world but not of it. Sometimes alienated from our family even because of the covenant of promise. And Jesus told us ahead of time that this would be the result of his coming. He said in Matthew 10, he said, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And this is what God told us from the start, isn't it? In Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman would be at enmity with the seed of the serpent. The divide in the human race is not between ethnic, economic, or social status, but between those who follow Jesus and those who do not. Sometimes those who follow Jesus are persecuted, sometimes merely rejected, at other times tolerated as kind of the weird religious relative. 
But here's the point, that tension of not fitting in with your family because you don't belong, because this world is not your home, that tension is not new. In fact, it's as old as Abraham and Isaac. This world is not our home. We live as aliens and strangers on the earth. Now, Josue uh, ran across this great quote uh, while preparing for his upcoming uh, church history Sunday school, and I am stealing it right now. Uh, uh, you, should, you should come uh, to that uh, Sunday school class, which is going to begin next week, uh, because it's going to be great. Uh, but he, he, he came across this quote from an early Christian letter uh, uh, somewhere around the early second century about the pilgrim life of Christians. Right? Again, this, this idea isn't new. We didn't invent it. Uh, it's, of course, as old as the Bible and has been uh, professed throughout the life of the church. But here's what it says. The writer says, for Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. This teaching of theirs has not been discovered by the thought and reflection of ingenious people, nor do they promote any human doctrine as some do. But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the law. They love everyone, and by everyone, they are persecuted. Our witness may be messy, but we live as aliens and strangers on earth. This world is not our home. And so while we live in the world, we do not live like the world because we do not belong to it. So how do we live in the world among non-Christians? Imperfectly, to be sure, but as pilgrims. And third, seeking the other's good. So first, our, our messy witness. Second, our pilgrim life. And third, our servant's calling. If this world is not our home, what are we doing here? Uh, why, not, why doesn't God just zap us straight into heaven when we come to Christ? And the answer is, we are not only pilgrims, we are also servants. And while we know God promised to make Abraham a blessing to the nations, we don't see much of that in Isaac's life. Uh, there, there, may be, uh, there may have been things that happened that the scriptures just don't tell us about. But, of course, what we do see is Isaac actually avoided his own brother's. This is one of those things that reminds us that Abraham and Isaac are never our direct example. They only point us to Jesus. And yet, if you think about it, God preserves the covenant line through Isaac for the sake of the nations. God's work through the line of Isaac is heading toward the cross, which is not just for the line of Isaac, but for all the children of Abraham, in fact, for all the nations. 
In fact, when the prophets talk about the coming of Jesus, they mention even the other children of Abraham. Uh, In Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 7, it's a, a longer section, but let me read it. Isaiah is prophesying of the coming of Jesus and God drawing people to Jesus. And he says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. So he's saying that Jesus is going to come as as the light of Israel and the nations will come to him. And then Isaiah goes on. He says, a multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. Now those are all children of Keturah. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Keter shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. Those are children of Ishmael. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. God says when the light of Christ comes, he will gather all the nations into his people, including the children of Keturah and the children of Ishmael. They will find acceptance through Jesus and their presence will make his temple, his new covenant temple, his church, beautiful. The church, God says, is beautiful because the nations are a part of it. And while this moment in Genesis 25 seems so exclusivist, right, for Isaac to be protected, his brothers, his brothers have to be shipped off to who knows where, God is preserving his covenant line for the sake of the nations. Now, while Isaac was a pilgrim and stranger on earth, as we said, Jesus too became a stranger. At at home with the Father for eternity, the Son of God took on flesh and experienced what it was like to be a pilgrim, a stranger. Jesus became an immigrant, an alien, rejected by his brothers. But Jesus not only lived as a stranger, he invited the strangers in. He became a stranger so that we might become family. He was rejected that we might receive his inheritance. He was abandoned that we might be accepted. The son became sin for sinners that we sinners might become sons. Jesus was better than Isaac who could only stand apart. Jesus stood with and for and so invites us to stand with him and to find adoption and acceptance in him. And so Jesus has shown us what it looks like to live as a stranger for the sake of strangers. We are free to live as strangers here because we have a home in heaven. And we are free to love the people of this world because we are loved by our Father in heaven. We are free to live as a pilgrim and stranger, even among family, because we have been given Jesus' spirit of adoption. And we belong to his family. Jesus has shown us what it looks like to live as a stranger for the sake of strangers. Now, as members of his family, we can live as strangers for the sake of strangers. Or put differently, right, this is our calling to live as pilgrims and to love the citizens of this world, 
even though we are citizens of heaven. We are called to serve our enemies, even as Jesus served us while we were his enemies. God preserves the covenant line for the sake of the nations even now. We are here to love God and neighbor to the glory of God, to love as we have been loved, to serve as we have been served. We do that through our work. We do that in our families. We do that in our church. We do that in our neighborhoods. We do it around the world. So how do we live in the world among non-Christians, imperfectly to be sure, as pilgrims seeking the other's good? And finally, focused on things to come. So we've looked at our messy witness, our pilgrim life, our servant's calling, and now, finally, our living hope. Abraham gave Isaac everything. And after Abraham's death, God blessed Isaac, verse 11. And this was the the end of Abraham's earthly pilgrimage and the beginning, as it were, of Isaac's. Uh, But for both Abraham and Isaac, this was not the end. Uh, They were looking for the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And when Jesus went to the cross and bore sin and was exiled from life itself and then rose from the dead, he entered into the new creation and demonstrated that for all who trust in him, we too will enter in one day. There is a city that God has made and Jesus has entered in as it were. Jesus is our living hope. He rose giving us hope that we too will rise. Whatever happens in the moment, whether we experience good like Isaac or long hardships and struggles like Abraham, whether we are rich or poor, surrounded by family and friends or lonely, whether we find a vocation that makes our hearts sing or slog it out every day for minimum wage in a, quote, dead-end job, whether we live relatively pain-free or experience physical trials day after day, whatever the circumstances of our present life, our hope is not in this present life. Our hope is not that this life will go well. As Christians, we sometimes get sidetracked, hoping for this life to go well. Now, we we can work toward that end. Uh, We can seek to bless others in the present, but this world is not our home. And our hope is not for the present age. Our home is in heaven. And our hope is in the coming age, when heaven and earth will be one, when this world will be made new, and we will enter into our eternal inheritance, life with Jesus in our Father's immediate presence forevermore. We live in the world, imperfectly, as pilgrims, seeking the other's good, and focused on things to come. Christians are are not yet perfect but we are pilgrims in the world holding out hope to other imperfect people of our coming eternal inheritance, the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God himself. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us uh, to live as pilgrims in the world, serving those around us and yet focused on things to come to the glory of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.